Welcome back to The Film Experience. I'm your host, Nathaniel. This is part two of a conversation I was having with Nick Davis, who used to be our regular podcast co-host years ago. And we were catching up on 2021 movies. At the beginning of the last episode, we were talking about math, and I had compared Martha Plimpton's work to Jenna Rowland's. That'll be important for this episode. And we had just finished a conversation about No Time to Die and the meta-ness of current franchises. So that's where we jump back into the conversation. Um, but does the Matrix, does your reaction to the Matrix Resurrections overlap with this at all? Or was that a pretty different experience for you? Um, I don't have as many feelings about the Matrix movies. Mm. Like, I know you were not a fan of the original, which you stood alone bravely for so long. Um, and I just didn't care after the original. Like, I thought mm. most sequels were just atrociously boring. Yeah. Um, and I know boring is like the laziest adjective for a movie, but I remember I specifically remember seeing the first sequel. I forget what it was called, uh, Reloaded or Revolutions or something. Like yeah. That. Um, and I specifically remember being there opening night and like the crowded theater, and people, you know, in almost every row had their phones out and were like doing things on their phones. And I was like, people are bored. Yeah. This is a boring movie. It's like, and that's not the energy they brought into the experience either, because right. people were hyped up as fuck. Yeah, yeah. And so, in some ways, like I just, since I don't care about that franchise, I thought this was fun to watch, maybe because it was so meta. And I was like, oh, okay. And also, I've become more fascinated, also, you know, due to the era we're in, with the sort of like trans community claiming the movie. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I do not remember anybody talking about that in 1999. But it could be the trans people did, and I just didn't know trans mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like something that happened over the past 10 years, 15 years, you know, in retrospect, mm-hmm. um, based on, you know, the coming out of the Wachowskis. Again, not an expert on trans issues, but in that way, I found it really interesting to watch now that Lana Wachowski has, like, owned herself and her full self. Yeah in that way I found it super fascinating to know like now it's foregrounded now I can think about this because mm-hmm. I know the director wants me to think about that yeah um so in that way I found it really interesting even though as action movies I was just like yeah nothing in this series has ever had any weight or any meaning because it's all like is it virtual is it reality do people die do they not die I don't I don't yeah. know <laughs> in that way like it was boring too but it to me but as a movie like I thought it was interesting I, I was interested the whole time you know that we we're talking about the snake eating its tail you know that that sort of meta-ness in Hollywood right now and I and I sort of like if you're gonna do that you should foreground it why not because I yeah. love the idea of like having different actors play variations of the characters which you know I wish franchises would, would be a little less um precious about ah you know, getting why? the whole original team back yeah mm-hmm. um so, like, I thought Jonathan Groff was great as Agent Smith, and, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it, to a degree. <laughs> to a degree. I just taught the first one in a grad seminar this week, and and because of some of the things we were reading, especially the work that's especially about race and sexuality in The Matrix, uh-huh. like you, that all gets so much more live in the two sequels that, like, I sort of had to watch all of them. And, uh, and like... I guess I, I, for those three, I went from like, I can see that the matrix is really well made and I just hate the ideology that it's selling. And I think it, because it's so slick and sexy, it makes the ideology more 
palatable and I wish it didn't do that. And then all the way to re revolutions where it's like, but this just sucks. Like this is a terrible, like that third movie is just deadly as an experience. And it's not even a matrix movie, even remotely. It's just about spaceships. But this one, like I, I will, I still have a sort of baseline, I guess, allergy in some ways to like the franchise, but um, so it's not like I'm coming in with perfectly good faith. I did like that she was like I, I know you're expecting black and green and i'm gonna give you blue and red and this movie's gonna look totally different and it was like a different style proposition which i liked even though there is so much as there always has been with the matrix just so much meta commentary although that seemed to just explode to all new levels um but there were things I liked about it and its sense of humor that like it did feel like stretching new possibilities. But I just feel like, you know, you and I are both kind of disciples of Bound. And one of the reasons is because like that movie shows and does not tell everything. And like, it just seems so precociously talented at when somebody did say something like those characters really picked their words. I had a partner. She fucked me. Like, but mostly it's like the bodies and the camera movement and the tension and the edits. And like, I just wish the Wachowskis had not become these filmmakers who just indulge endless monologues that seem as though you better pay attention or you won't understand anything. But what about this monologue would possibly make you want to pay attention, especially it's just so prosaic and convoluted. And I have to say, I did not like Jonathan Groff or Neil Patrick Harris at all um in this and was also sort of sitting with like given that there is more of a like i can kind of get behind no no need to be defensive here like this movie clearly has something it wants to demonstrate about like so fuck therapists and fucks is white gay men and like there are some cast of characters that it's clearly kind of out for in ways that may have something to do with like i'm just going to own one version of a sort of trans epistemology and name a couple different villains that aren't always the villains that get named in movies, but they've done a lot of bullshit to us. Like, did I always love it? No, but like, you know, I get that as a point of view, but I just felt like the, the villains as villains didn't make any sense. And these movies have repeatedly, I think, done the thing of like giving you like three different endings and not in the last 20 minutes of the movie, they start ending like halfway through, but then just rebooting themselves. And like with this one where it's like, one character who's like a major antagonist reverses course completely and gets them out of a bad jam for like a half hour action set piece. And as soon as it's over, goes back to being the antagonist they were before so they can have another half hour action set piece. And it's like, just end the fucking movie. You know, like it can be a hundred minutes. That would really be okay. Is it a zombie movie now? I think it's a zombie movie. Like it just, it keeps sort of changing genres and ways and now it's bird box and people are jumping out of windows and i don't know why like uh, it, it got it got a little senseless to me i did like carrie ann moss i did like that plot line a little bit yeah i mean again i'm not my like is very reserved i just you yeah. know it's a decent watch um but i've never really understood the franchise's appeal fair because even if you're paying attention yeah which I really did the first time nothing makes yeah. sense really yeah it's like <laughs> It's it's like that's why I think exposition is so deadly for genre movies. I'm like a good a recent example I think would be um, Us, which mm. is like a great it's like great cinema up until like the last like 20 minutes where it wants yeah. to give you the backstory of how this all happened. Yeah, I'm like no, it's so much more fascinating if we have to like work through this dream logic. I know 
how is this happening? It's so much scarier. I know. Um, and sort of more fascinating when it was about this one woman in this pretty particular situation instead of just like everybody in the world, like I, everybody in the world is going through this. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. And even Get Out had that a little bit, but not, not as, not as yeah. well. You know what I mean? I just think exposition is just always the wrong way to go in, in genres that defy logic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet exposition is like, every director's favorite thing apparently mm. um in this of all genres yeah <laughs> like yeah i blame christopher nolan i is, know which is what i'm prone to do on a weekly basis yeah <laughs> for many things but it's 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 weird feeling like the bifurcation i mean i feel this way even about the last couple mission impossibles um that like the action sequences are so doted over and are often really kind of exciting and innovative and yet it's somehow the same movie that then there will be a whole half hour that's just like chunky, like, but does, is his ex-wife still alive? And like, does this person who we thought was his ally, have they actually turned? And it's like, you seem to really want to get us to some kinetic events. <laughs> like, can we get back? You don't have to have monologues in between, but it just seems to become like de rigueur in a lot of these Or things. you could, you know, do it like Mad Max Fury Road, where it's just... Just shut up. Even yeah. the action scenes are telling you all these things about characters. Yes, exactly. Like, why not do it that way? Like, yeah. hell, even the Terminator movies are, like, the the sort of character dramas is usually embedded in the action scene. There's a couple times we stop for, yeah. for explanation, but not many. Yeah. So, like, I don't know what when that became the thing. Like I know, I was crazy. thinking about how Aliens had that whole sequence where she's like, you know, at the beginning, where she's thinking about how she's never going to meet her daughter and that she's been traumatized by what happened. And they were like, let's just cut that. <laughs> it's only like in the director's cut. And now that would be a solid hour of the film, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can't have a sci-fi drama without some sort of tragic backstory. Well, what, okay, so what would you like to talk next? What do you want to um, make sure we don't not talk about? I don't know that I want to talk about this at length, but I I do want to know if you liked Annette or not. Um, I was really excited by the kind of movie Annette is, and I've liked his movies just pretty repeatedly. And I liked that they couldn't be anything else except, I mean, whatever. They're so cinematic. I felt creeped out by Annette because, but for the specific reason of like, the way he's cast Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard because they look so much increasingly over the movie goes on like him and his dead partner and the dead partner who died 10 years ago who nobody has specified a cause of death even today and they had this child together who appears as herself as the child that they had together and he appears as himself and like Oh, I say, yeah, Katarina Goyubeva from like Pola X and the Claire oh. Denis movies like that was his partner um, for quite a long time. And in 2011, there was just an obituary about 10 days after she'd apparently died saying she has died, the cause of death is uncertain. And it's never been given. And so to make a movie that's about like, I sort of feel like I killed her, but also she sort of fell, but also spiritually I feel responsible, even if I wasn't practically, but I might've been practically responsible. And I'm gonna cast the actress who looks most like her and make her increasingly look like her and make Adam Driver, as things get weirder, look more and more like me. And also I'll be in the film so you can see that. Yeah, yeah. It just feels like a weird, like, 
it's so extravagant and conceptual and abstract in some ways and in other ways it was like that oj like if i had done it like and find it kind of staggering that that has not become part of the discourse about this movie because it seems so blatantly part of what he's doing well i think if he were better known um as a director see like i like police is my favorite of his movies yeah and i didn't even know this yeah so i i would be theoretically someone who would know this Well, and he's the kind of director that, like, yeah, like, a lot of people don't know who he is, but people who do know who he is, like, relentlessly sort of sit with every single detail of all of his films. And, like, that at least should have been, like, in in the Karak's verse, people might be talking about this more, but they they sure don't seem to be. Um, So that was not easy for, I could not remove that from what's already a kind of agitating movie. And I'm, I'm, I just don't like Adam Driver as an actor. Like, Girls is in his plus column and, like, nothing else is for me. And in a way, this is a good role for him because you can just be like, fuck you, you know? But, like, I just, I'm hoping we can retire him soon. Wow, I am, I'm feeling sorry for you when we are in the Adam Driver era. Oh, my God, we so are. But <laughs> He had, like, three movies this year. <laughs> yeah, and talk about somebody who doesn't necessarily seem to be enjoying it, which is fine, you don't have to, you know, but... Um, I wonder how much longer that's all going to last. But um, Okay, this gives me a whole new <laughs> weirded out about Annette. I did not, like, I didn't, uh, again, this is another one that I admired more than I liked, but I, my, even my admiration was like a little like, hmm, are we sure about this? Because yeah. I, I love musicals, A, yep. obviously everybody knows this, and I like experiments, the grand experiments. Yep. So, like, I was theoretically in its column. Yep. And I... I loved the opening scene, but then even that, I just felt like it had all these ideas about what a grand experiment it was, and then it just kept doing the same thing. Like, the songs felt similar to me, and yeah, scenes felt similar to me, and I just, like, if you're going to come on so strong, yeah, like, explode from there rather than just come on in the same way. Yeah with each new set piece or whatever. And I just didn't feel like in like an arc at all. So like as storytelling, I was sort of just lost by like, why? And yeah. whereas his other movies, I, I, I love Holy Motors, like um, Polly Eeks is my favorite of his. And I just, mm-hmm. I usually really respond to the way he tells stories. Yeah, you're doing a better job than I am of talking about the movie the way that it is. And like, but I agree with all that. And there's there's a way too in which like if you're gonna lean so hard into like the sort of post-traumatic emotions and guilt after she dies, sorry everybody, like it might have helped to characterize both of them a little more fully. I mean, it 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 seemed like the first half of the movie is just a proposition about like how far are you willing to go with this repugnant kind of driver character, although he is playing a role, you know. Um, and she's a little idealized and a little harder to get to know anything about. And, you know, I just wonder if it might have helped to flesh out her character, have more to work with um, by the time our emotional connection to her may need to be kind of strong. But yeah, and I agree about the self-repetition, but there are so many moments that I think I don't remember very well that in the moment of watching and listening to Annette, like crazy stuff happens across a certain edit or like the screen turns into something else or like relationships of dream states to other dream states. Like it's really exciting just at the level of somebody who just kind of can't even help being creative. Um, yeah, I kind I, of do I, like it despite everything I said, but in, in that respect, like I, I likened it to like Baz Luhrmann. Mm-hmm. That, I, they're very different filmmakers, obviously, but like, like I remember one thing he was saying about Moulin Rouge once 
and I'm doing a horrible job of paraphrasing, but he like, so I'm not even going to attempt, but it, the vibe of what he was saying was something about like every moment needs to be like that sort of big, spectacular climactic moment that uh-huh. people feel. And I thought, no, no, it doesn't. Even though I love Mulan. <laughs> Yeah. So like I was like, no, that's really not the way you can't have all peaks. You, stories have to like ebb and flow and have like, you know, and build and like, yeah, yeah, like, wow, wow, wow. That's more like a light show than a movie, you know? Yeah. Um, and I felt that way with this one a lot, which is, made me think of that Baz Luhrmann interview way back when. Um, that makes total sense. Because it just feels like every scene is like, this is what people are going to be talking about. And like, this is like a big, weird weird moment and like some of those weird moments I was like really in the bag for yeah like, I don't I'm not a fan at all like 100% not a fan of Simon Helber like I don't okay. enjoy his acting anything, mm-hmm. in anything um but I loved that weird scene where he was like I'm an accompanist and uh-huh like I was just like okay so this is like a big moment for a minor character so like there were a lot of choices the movie making the movie made that felt like nothing about this choice makes sense other than to show off. Yeah. Um, and so, but I sort of dug it, but at the same time, like that's all, everything is like that. Yeah. They need some variation. Yeah. But then when it finally gives me variation in the, in the back half where it just gets, I, yeah, I, it, it progressively, I progressively enjoyed it less as it went on. Yep. If people are looking for a Rorschach to figure out, why did I react to this the way I reacted it? But it's a movie that kind of wants you to have a reaction that might not even make total sense to you. This is a good one and we need more of those and yay. But I, I wish I had more affection for it. Yes. Um, so the one- Her Golden I- Globe nomination was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, we'll leave it at that. Um, since we're on musicals, is there any more you want to say about West Side Story? There's so much to say about it. Yeah. Again. So- I did this in the last podcast, but again, everyone, if you aren't following Nick on Letterboxd, you're just like slaying those reviews lately. Your review of West Side Story is so good. Oh, thank you. It feels like a review that Tony Kushner himself would like, because even though it's not 100% positive, you're really like working through all the issues, which is what he's doing too while he's writing. Well, and because of your affection for this genre and because of like we talk so often as we've been doing with several of these movies about like how do you coordinate the relations of different registers of what's heightened and what's realistic and what's historical and what's imagined like um, I've been so and since that was where I got tied up for better and sometimes for worse with this movie I just wondered about your your reaction to where this movie is on all those spectrums. Well, as you know, and as everyone listening knows, West Side Story is my favorite all time movie. So I was maybe not the right audience for this. Like in, in terms of they didn't need to, they weren't trying to sell me on it. Right? Yeah. I re- thoroughly enjoyed it uh, once I was able to, well, actually I was never able to fully pull out of comparing it to the 61, um, but just because I've seen that one so many dozens of times. Um, yeah. But I liked that right from the start, it was confrontational enough about its changes that I'd be like, okay, these are artists. They're rethinking something. Yep. I can let go of the past thing, even though I couldn't really. I can intellectually let go of the past thing yeah. and just like just take in what they're giving me. So in that way, I thought it was a great experience. Like the score is still like the greatest score ever written for musical theater. So like, and it was sung so beautifully across the board that I was just like, because if they had cast people that they had to dub again, or yeah, if the singing wasn't on par. 
um, you know, that would have been a problem for me. Mm-hmm. But it, it was thoroughly respected the musical genre. So I, I have a, a ton of affection for it, even though it was never going to top the 61 mm-hmm. for me. Because yeah. it was um, so that's where I was with it. I thought it was really super thoughtful and very energetic. I loved this sort of like full energy from the start to the finish. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought everything to do with the character of Valentina was a brilliant choice. And we can thank Mar- Mark Harris for that. Indeed, apparently. And you were a big In the Heights fan, as I recall. Yes. And um, is there anything interesting to say about like how those two movies sort of complement each other for you or whether you feel like what you like about them is similar to each other or pretty different? Well, In the Heights is, is not as intellectually interesting. Yeah. Um, so I think they're very dissimilar approaches to musicals in that way. Like, I, I mean, I prefer In the Heights, um, but yeah. that's that wouldn't necessarily be true if I had never had a version of West Side Story. Like, uh-huh. I'm not sure that they would be in conversation that much if they hadn't come out the same year. Yeah, I wonder about that too. And like, but I do think that the two of them, like, you know, unlike something like Annette, like, I don't think either of those movies thinks like the musical is a genre that needs to be updated or that we have to, you know, kind of right. really fuck with in some new way. And it feels like In the Heights is pretty, even within the movie, pretty um, forward about it being a kind of dreamed or, or you know, kind of hyperbole of the actual neighborhood that it's about. And then the, culture, the conversation that emerged around that and like the sort of the politics of this fantasy of the Heights, you know, yeah. when we all kept up with that, I'm sure. And so that just the, the within the film and in, outside the film, that trajectory of like, when do we need to be sort of like kind of in some way professing some loyalty to who really does live places and the histories of them and not just turn them into sort of dream states. Yeah. Um, just seemed like an interesting segue into like how this movie is really both interested in trying to historicize and be particular while also giving us this big splashy um, kind of heightened operatic take on these neighborhoods and the peoples and and the people in them. Um, So that's, I think that's part of why I have thought of them together and also that they're just so, you know, uninhibited about their musicalness. Yeah. Well, I mean, they are, they are both, they both dance around with gentrification a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'm probably being defensive just because I, I hated them being pitted against each other all year. I see. Yep. Um, just because, like, you know, I don't know if you saw my review of or my interview with Lin Manuel Miranda, but we, you know, we were talking about musicals, and you know, he made the point, which I fully agree with, that like, it's like a full genre. Like, so many different variations can happen within an entire right. genre. Um, and so, like, you know, he's like, Annette is not West Side Story, which is not In the Heights, which is not, you know, Tick, Tick, Boom. Right, right. Um, and I fully agree with that and endorse that. And I wish everybody would view musicals that way. And in that way, it's annoying, even though I always proclaim to love the Golden Globes for having a musical category. It's annoying that it's comedy slash musical. Yeah. Right. <laughs> because there are obviously musical dramas as well as musical comedies. <laughs> right. Um, I resist them being compared, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think in this case, it actually made me a little more admiring of what they had both done, because in a way I, I didn't respond as fully as you did to to In the Heights' execution, but right. I did feel like it did not give itself a mission that it was going to have to trip over. 
and West Side Story, I felt like was just so much more sophisticated and ambitious. And, um, and when I was responding to it, I was really responding to it, but it seemed like it had made a series of choices that really were gonna crash into the pressures of like the last third, um, which for me, it really did. Yeah, that was my same reaction to West Side Story. Like, I, I think it's a very strong movie um, and I'm very happy that Spielberg turned out good at directing musicals, which I guess shouldn't have surprised me that much because I was always obsessed with that anything goes musical number um, from uh, Temple of Doom. But um, oh right, the the last half hour of the movie doesn't completely work for me, which is what you know kept it from being like one of my top ten favorites of the year type of thing. Yeah, because I I ended up feeling it being all in my head about it as opposed uh -huh. to my heart. Um, and I think it's very important for West Side Story's operatic quality that you're just, that you're all in your heart. Yep. Yep. You know, because like the, the ending is just so tragic and operatic that I think you'd have to be like crying or didn't totally work. Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, it felt very rushed at the ending. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what was the problem, but I just didn't, I was very with it until like the last 20 minutes or so. I think you mentioned this in the review, but the, the my big problem with the movie was I Feel Pretty, which is uh, such a great number in general. And I hate when people say, oh, that doesn't, that should be cut. Like I, weirdly, I would have been happy with that being cut this time because it just, mm -hmm. that and Officer Krupke, which are both really, really great musical comedy numbers and uh -huh. work in the 1961 feature. Yep. Um, I, in both cases this time, I was like this, I don't think this is the movie you wanted to make. Yep. I think you wanted to go full musical tragedy. Yep. Whereas the original is more musical everything. It's like the yep. biggest musical of all time. It has all, it contains all musicals. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so in that way, I didn't, I thought those choices didn't work. Like Officer Krupke was like weirdly not funny to me at all. Like I could tell yeah, the actors were same. performing it, but they were performing it well, but I'm just like, this just isn't enjoyable. Yeah. And yet I've read so many people and some of them have written to me to be like, but that was, that was the most fun I had in the whole film. That's like the perfect sequence in it. So it's clearly landing in different ways for different people, but I was where you were. And you'll know better than I do, but it has been my impression that West Side Story was also a, a piece that vis-a-vis -vis the estate was pretty hard to get permissions to for a long time. And they were also maybe a little punctilious about like, you can't fuck with this too much. Um, I thought that was the scuttlebutt about it. And like that only recently oh, yeah, you can't they can't cut any numbers or or yeah, or like, you know, really change this into something really new. And so like it's been sort of exciting that the last few years it that seems to have all been relaxed a little bit. And yeah. that made me more even even changes that I wasn't sure I totally accepted. It was exciting to watch a West Side story that was allowed to play around um or differently yeah. inflect and i liked that but then it it also felt like if you've set the expectation with me that you are not beholden um to the template you've received it just seems like there are some things at the end that like figure out something else about the maria anita beat at the end that has always been bizarre um and that you've been offering me um in this case an anita and a maria who are not going to be able to see eye to eye after what's just happened so why are we do we have to you know i'm sorry i i had a love slash a boy like that that number 
Yeah, well, yes. And just the like, I nothing about me thinks this Anita is saying anything except get the fuck out of my apartment, you know, like, and that Tony Kushner is a great artist of people who are on the same team until they can't be or are not on the same team, but life pushes them together. And, um, and there were, even as the Valentina stuff was so interesting to me and so moving, but there were other things that felt like this is happening because it like has to, because it's West Side Story, but it it just, ah, like that was when I kind of fell out with it, even before we get to the drugstore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could I could see that. That's always been like such a, uh, a 180 turn in, in the musical. Yeah. But I thought Rita Moreno pulled it off better than Ariana DeBose did. Yeah. Well, I was sort of waiting for a moment, like, I don't have any bad feelings about Ariana DeBose's performance, but I was kind of waiting for a moment for it to really come into its own as a different sort of take on the character. And I'm not sure that I felt that happen, which maybe was another reason why I got up in my feelings about, like, this is your opportunity. Like, let let Anita go somewhere else um, and lean into some of the flintiness and other qualities that I thought she was trying to give her. and that scene, I think even just musically didn't totally play to maybe her strengths exactly, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I can see what you're saying. Like, it's interesting that, you know, cause Rita Moreno, you know, famously doesn't like Natalie Wood very much, but hmm. it's interesting to me that Rita's take on the material, I felt a lot more innate affection for Maria. Mm-hmm. That sort of informed that sort of about face that she was like protect Maria at all costs type of thing. There was yeah. some underlying in the yep. performance that felt very like sort of always on Maria's side, ride or die type of thing. Yeah. Um, that I didn't get this time, which is yeah. weird because Ariana DeBose, <laughs> it's called acting, Nathaniel, but it's weird because Ariana DeBose and Rachel Zegler seem very tight in a way that Rita Moreno and Natalie would never work, you know? Yeah. So it's interesting to me that that would be like the reaction I got from the performance. It's like, but wait, do you actually like love her enough to make this about face in your characterization? For this? Well, it's interesting, right? With process that like, I, you know, we can't project too much, but like it, it, it is striking to me how like, if you are not innately be like, I'm just going to bring my affection for my scene partner into the scene and it'll help the character. But you realize I have a problem to solve here. Like you might actually have to solve it, which I think Rita Moreno maybe did. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, the the actual sympathy between the characters or the actors in this one, it, it may mean that people aren't making the kind of choices that they might, if they're cognizant of this as a scene, they might have to do some work on. Yeah, the performances felt a little green to me in some ways with some of these elements. Mm-hmm. Um, like musically, I was they were off the charts. I was so happy, so pleased with all of them. Yeah. But the, um, but the only performance that felt to me like oh, you've completely made this your own, was Mike faced as... as Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, Where he felt like, you know, like, fuck everything that's happened in the past. I'm going to, like, zero in on what I think of this character, and that's what I'm going to deliver, like, from the first scene to the last. And I felt like he completely reinvented it. Yes. Where the other... And he didn't... He had a little bit of help from the script and that, but not any more than anybody else did with the changes in the script. Yeah. In that way, I'm a little like weirded out by everybody's passion for the performances themselves. Mm. Like, I love the movie, but I wouldn't, you know, Mike Face is the only one I wouldn't, I would be like, let's nominate him for everything, you know? Yeah. And also, it seemed to me like it, it, he's, 
he seemed in his choices informed both by the historical textures that the script is sometimes offering about like this is a poor white guy who's got the specific chips on his shoulder about how things are going down and mm -hmm. um but also is playing this archetype and um that performance doesn't seem like it's straining to do two things like he's melded it all together but he makes sense in both sides of this movie's personality yeah and and again i'm i'm underselling like these performances are all very good across the board i think don't look up it seems like a weird thing to <laughs> from now on when i'm in an awkward silence in any conversation i'm gonna go don't look up <laughs> <laughs> oh, we didn't. Oh, we, actually, there's a few things we haven't talked about. Petite Maman, Great Freedom. Um, yeah, some of those we can just do as like a blitz round. I think I'm interested in like my. I, I don't know my own one sentence reaction to some of those is, but and I, I well whatever. I don't care what we do. You can Petite Maman. Oh. Great segue from what we were just talking about with West Side Story, actually, about being in your heart and in your head. Oh, uh huh. Petite Maman was one where I was totally with it intellectually, and then it was like kaboom emotionally. Like, I keep hearing about that reaction, and I was in my I I was in my head the whole time. Oh, was, really? Well, that's a cool exercise you made. <laughs> okay. I, I could not totally get with it, and it was interesting to me because with Portrait Lady on Fire, maybe the one qualm I have about that movie is like, I think this could be a really hugely meaningful moment in these women's lives without you having to sell me so hard on like and then they were the one that for decades after they never let like it, it sort of hyperbolized the the passion of it in a way that i thought was a little um overly robust so i was happy to see a shama movie that might be a little um more austere um yeah. but i just never really i i didn't i did not cotton to this one and felt like a kind of like workshop exercise that I saw what it was going for. I could not work out, like, have I already deduced this faster than you wanted me to? Or was this always supposed to be pretty obvious what was going on? Yeah. I'm not sure either one of those reactions makes the movie interesting enough to me, but. Hmm. Oh yeah, but you I, got loved, walloped. I loved it, yeah, I loved okay. it. I don't remember when it dawned on me what the movie was doing, but I think it was fairly early. Uh -huh. And if I recall correctly, and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And as soon as I like, sort of like register the, the intellectual thought, then I just felt everything. Okay. And it's important for me. Like I like to think about movies in, in, in both ways, of course. Um, and I can't remember who said it, but back in the day when people used to have these arguments about, you know, like to just turn off your brain and enjoy things like complaining about critics. Right. Mm. And somebody online, somebody brilliant said, but what if my brain is where I enjoy things? Yeah. <laughs> and bless whoever said that, I can't remember. Um, yeah. Because that is really the case. But I also, you know, when something's like, I also need a little bit of both, you know? Yeah. Um, and that, that kind of was my problem with Annette. Like intellectually, I thought it was super interesting, but I just didn't ever feel anything about the relationships other than, wow, these are fucked up people. And that was like the end of my emotional involvement. Yeah. So, yeah. There was something funny too for me that I saw it a week. There were different festivals, but they're back to back in Chicago. So it feels like the LGBTQ festival and then the big city festival are often like one symphony for me. Yeah. And I saw that Bruce LaBruce movie, San Narcis, that was- really want to see i like him as a filmmaker but i just I, I that was one i missed this year well and which is also about a character who like shows up in this rural town and finds his doppelganger and has to work out how there are two of them 
and it's this whole Narcissus myth thing. But it's not as like polished a movie as as Petite Mama is. But like I think what that movie's partly going for is like you might meet your exact double and not have that much to say to them, um, or, or like the person just remains sort of an enigma. What you really want to do is like go fuck all these guys who are like the weird thugs around town or whatever. Um, and, and, but then also fuck this woman, like it's a Bruce LeBruce movie, so whatever. So like then with, when there, I think with it so recently in my mind to watch another queer filmmaker who tells queer stories and as with musicals sees a broad spectrum there, um, was really gunning for like something pretty moving about this encounter of the same person with herself. Um, I don't know if that's part of why it played to me as a little cold. Um, or it seemed to be trusting that this is itself a kind of moving proposition. And I was like, well, it doesn't have to be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so interested that you that you reacted this way. I thought, for sure, when I saw it on your list, I'm like, oh, he's going to love that one. <laughs> Whereas with Great Freedom, I was like, oh, like that, that was a big emotional one for me, even while that movie is a little tricked out with time frames and for a while. And I felt like, even as a, I mean, it's not like the German context of it is one that I've thought about tons and tons, but like there's certain stories you understand why we always tell about these periods of oppression and jailing and like, you know, this infraction or that infraction or sex in this bathroom, even if the only place you're allowed that you, well, you're not allowed, but the only place that sex seems possible mm-hmm. and then you go to jail and it is a sort of story of persecution, but like to watch a story about a guy who's like, I'll go to jail as many times as you need me to. This is how I will be living. I, I don't like jail, you know, but like <laughs> I I am committed enough to my own life and my own desires that like I understand that's part of the package, whatever. And that it sort of, and then there were all these different questions, like, like jail is not the same experience in different generations. And, and I don't think I'm, that's asserted to me all that often. Like it usually feels like prison has rules and you're stuck with them and that's the whole point of it. So there was a lot to think about, I thought, in Great Freedom, but it also just really moved me. And I wonder if it did you also. Oh, totally. I loved it so much. It's like in, I had three movies uh, this year that that aren't released that I was just like, oh, I hope everyone watches them, which are 107 Mothers. Mm, God, great. This one from Austria and Happening from France. Mm-hmm. So those were my three foreign movies that didn't get released that I just was absolutely wild for this year. Um, yeah. But alas, they're 2022 movies for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Um, except for the, you know, two of them were submitted for the Oscars. So theoretically, <laughs> well, I mean, uh, great. 107 Mothers didn't make the long list, but. Um, yeah. But theoretically, Great Freedom could still be nominated for an Oscar. I, I don't think it'll happen in a million years. And I'm shocked it made the uh, finalist list, but um, so good. Yeah. And I, I do think reactions to it will be all over the place. Mm. What it's proposing is sort of, sort of, it's sort of like sex positivity. I think it's going to really throw a lot of people mm. um, because, you know, it's it's a, it's a grim movie. Yeah. But it's sort of like in love with the idea of like fucking. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think of the place the world is in right now. And I think the ending is going to throw a lot of people, whereas I thought the ending was kind of perfect. Me too. Even though I hated hated that for the character and hated the way the character behaved, I was like, this is that character. Mm-hmm. Totally, fully bought into the ending. 
Yep. Which I will say no more about. Yeah. I like a daring ending as long as it lands. Yeah. <laughs> Don't look up. <laughs> Here we go again. With daring endings, things that land. I don't know. Like a, a <laughs> <laughs> the crash land um i don't know what to say about don't look up it's like again that was like one of the that's another one of these movies we were talking about like fully an hour ago where they're only discussed in the context of awards mm. and i just don't know what to say about this filmmaker other than that i'm just not a fan yeah um i liked this one better than i have his other movies but that doesn't mean that i wanted to be nominated for things like i thought it was reasonably funny like all these people saying i didn't laugh once i was just like I don't know what to say to that other than I thought they had a lot of funny parts, but it didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't think it was a great movie. Yeah. And it was like half hour too long, at least. That's um, too long. Message is like, you can't disagree with the message, but as, as again, execution is not, is different than your theme. Yeah. And I guess like, it's a case where I feel like my, I don't know. And I felt the same way with Vice. I don't know that I have a problem with his kind of pitilessness of like, I hate all you motherfuckers. Like, and, and like, there is a sort of, a, yes, there's an arrogance to that. And there's a smugness to that. Sure. But I hear that being expressed by all kinds of people, you know, sometimes me <laughs> in the way the world is right now. Right. And, and so it's surprising to me that um, it doesn't mean I want to have, I, I probably never want to have coffee with Adam McKay. Like, I don't know that in the world, this would be a person I'd want to get to know or spend time with based on the tone and viewpoint and sort of show offery of his movie sometimes. But I'm not sure I hold against him that he's like, yeah, in this situation, I look in every direction and I don't like anybody's response um, to things that require our ability to have some solidarity and some long view. Like, mm-hmm. and it, it, my impression is that that's where it's getting a lot of the bruising that it's getting of just the misanthropy. Oh, the smugness. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I feel like this is a technical issue. It's edited wrong. It, each individual shot and scene is a little too long. Like the, the reason the movie feels a half hour too long is because every part of it is like, edited to be heavy and like if this had some snap um or it it feels to me a little bit too like some sequences have to be long like like if you're going to let jonah hill kind of riff all of his lines and in real time like sort of watch everybody respond to an improv like that's going to have to have a certain pace (laughs) it'll be harder to sort of tighten it up and so does everything have to have the same pace as that like i don't know that might not even be true but it just feels like there's a lot of dead time in a lot of these yeah. scenes. And they, I can't tell if you're giving us room to laugh or or exactly what's going on or if your whole game here is that like you want us to watch people who think they're in a moment that's funny, but we're experiencing it as like slow horror. Like, I'm not sure. But it just felt like the editing is one of the things that his movies get technical praise for even when nothing else does. And I actually think it's the problem with this one. Um, Did you think it was but, one of those other ones? Well, like the it, the editing of this one feels different in a way. Like the, it doesn't feel like there are quite as many moments in this one where it's like a you know tricked out montage or the editing feels a little bit more subdued or less ostentatious. But just as an issue of pace and and tightening a scene and constructing a relationship, I thought this movie was actually pretty bad at that. But I didn't mind the proposition to have to think about 
it's not like, you know, big news, but since we don't seem to be making any progress with the problem, like, yeah, every, everybody thinks everybody else is the problem and we're each part of a big problem. And this is not implausible to me as like the big pathetic whimper, <laughs> which the world might end because nobody did anything different than they were doing before they got the news. And I did find the final scene a little, well, the penultimate scene, I guess, of the dinner table, like a little bit moving. Um, actually. Which is why, like, I can't, like, join the haters. Again, I, I think I like it better than his other movies. I just don't yeah. love it. But that yeah. also be just natural affection for Melanie Linsky. I know we both have it. Well, of course. <laughs> and unnatural affection, too. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, mean, I can't even really say that I liked the movie all that much, but I didn't. I feel like I didn't like the movie that got made. I don't have like a principled objection to anything about it or feel like there's no version of this that I could have gotten behind or like, you're a dick. And so I don't like your movie. Mm-hmm. Did you laugh? Did you think it was funny? I did. Yeah. Sometimes not, not like super, super often. And there were, it's weird to watch a movie with that big a cast and be like the people who are really not making me laugh or making me do anything are Meryl Streep and Kate Blanchett. That never happens. Like, but but there were other characters who did make me laugh. I mean, um, but I didn't think it was, I think a movie can be a comedy for a long time or have a bunch of funny actors who are in funny scenarios without actually wanting you to laugh. Um, and yeah, like the slowness that it didn't, maybe even though I don't like it about the movie, I did feel like this is how you edit this movie if you don't want people to laugh a lot, um, except maybe in the Jonah Hill sequences, um, who I thought, some of his jokes are better than others and the movie doesn't seem to be differentiating a lot, but yeah, it was enjoyable enough. Like the reaction has, you know, weirded me out a little But again. Award season makes people view movies different. Like if you release the same movie in March, very different reaction. Yeah. I certainly don't think people would be falling over themselves to give it, you know, awards for its ensemble acting. It's like, it's the best ensemble acting of the year, which is right. It's the most, most famous people in a movie this year. I mean, I know people think I hate Meryl Streep just because I'm not one over every time, but I just really thought she was super boring in this role. Yeah. Um, so that was frustrating for me. Um, I liked the side players much better. And weirdly, this is never, I don't think I've ever had this reaction to a movie. My favorite performance was Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, was it really? Yeah. Like, I thought he was really, really funny and he worked within the drama of it as well, too. And I just don't, I'm not a huge fan of his, so it's like, yeah. that surprised me. Yeah. Um, but I just genuinely thought he was really funny, like the hyperventilating, just like, I, in in both cases with, with him and Jennifer Lawrence, I did like that I felt fully in their shoes about like, yes, this would, this would make you either crazy lunatic raving on television crazy like her, or yeah. hyperventilate like him. And I liked that those were the two, my two options yep. for, for like, being with the leads you know yeah no and i think they're also really good at not acting big arcs with those characters like they're yeah. kind of um even though i i was interested in her like yeah fuck it let me just get high with these skateboarders like there's a certain type of, like i can't keep up the pitch of my fury at, at all moments but um they also just didn't act like they had changed that much in this amount of time and like they're still reacting to the thing they were reacting to in the beginning and that's what they wish more people were doing i yeah. i did like them both a lot um and maybe there is the like it doesn't bother me that adam mckay is like i'm not making any bones about like my contempt for almost everybody in my movie and it's partly a movie it's about contempt 
I don't need the actors to then double down on the contempt, which was a little bit what I felt Kate Blanchett and Meryl Streep just both got stuck doing. Like, I, I understand yeah. you hate the person you're playing, um, but, you know, Tyler Perry probably hates the person he's playing too, but he's not playing that. Okay, we should wrap up. We should wrap up. The only movie on our list we didn't get to. Oh, no, two. So just a quick word. The French yeah. Dispatch, which I finally caught up with, even though it came out a while yeah. ago. And The Tender Bar, which... <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? The French Dispatch that's like, what's what more could we do with a frame in The Tender Bar that's like, I don't know, this guy turned into a writer. You know, <laughs> Boston. Like, like a writer, not a visual artist. Just I mean, I guess they're both movies about journalists, <laughs> you know, whatever. But um, yeah, I, I had stayed away from the French Dispatch for, for a while because I kept hearing that, like, you really have to be into Wes Anderson's thing to want to put up with this. Like, this is Wes going full Wes on Wes. And that's not exactly who I am. Um, and I was kind of charmed by it. And like, I, I, I guess probably a lot of people have felt like the second story is not up to the ones on either side of it. And it doesn't even seem to really want to like tell that story in a certain way. But as a way to sit in an audience and be like, absolutely anything can happen in this shot. We could go up, we could go into it, we could back off from it, we could go side to side, some crazy animation. <laughs> we could go to animation, we could go like, it, it just felt like I am interested to watch you just experiment with a play space. And for somebody who just seemed to imagine a rectilinear box for a long time and ways to fill it with stuff, like, I feel like between this and Isle of Dogs, he's like, there's so much more I could even do. <laughs> it's still my aesthetic, but there's more ways to play with a film frame than I thought. And I found that really uh, exciting from moment to moment, even when it wasn't exciting because of the story. Yeah, I, re I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and I didn't even really feel that, you know, people are always like the problem with anthology formats or, you know, what they used to call them, omnibus formats yeah. or whatever. Um, is that, you know, some stories are always stronger than others, but I didn't even really have that reaction from it. And I actually wish that there had been a little more of the sort of bone motes between things where it's just uh -huh. like, this is an obituary, or this is like a little, like little things about the magazine to like, give me a full magazine instead of just three stories, you know? Yep. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I totally get what you're saying. Um, I, I, I have never felt like a huge fan of his, even though I, I love a few of his movies, um, but, I don't understand why. I've also never understood his detractors either. I was like, this mm -hmm. isn't fun for you when people complain about like, oh, it's just what he does. And I'm like, but nobody else does that. So it's not fun for you. <laughs> like, I love looking at his recti those rectilinear boxes you were talking about. And like, how yeah. to me that is so fun because if every filmmaker do it, I would find it super boring. Yeah. But it's not like he's being emulated all the time. Right. Or if you're like, if that's your thing, that's great. I would say, don't make a movie about the poverty of India. Let's, this, that's not a good match, Wes Anderson. You know, but like, there's plenty of other places you could go. Yeah. Um, and I did sign up for this. And yeah, whatever. Like, yeah. So I like that one fine. I love the score. Um, I thought the production design was really clever. Duh. Yeah. And the tender bar, you're like. And then the tender bar, the big finish on the tender bar. I mean, like, <laughs> like, um, I think Tim Brayton was the one who said, like, this is the movie for people who wanted Hillbilly Elegy to feel even more non-committally related to a boring protagonist who, I guess, becomes a writer. Um, but I don't know. I mean, 
I there are moments I like in the tender bar. I think we both like Ben Affleck in it, right? Like I think I get why people like him in it. I actually think that what Max Martini is doing is way more interesting and harder as the dad. And I didn't recognize him despite having been turned on by him in repeated films where I'm like, who's that soldier at Black Hawk Down? That's the one for me. Like, I thought I had a good eye for Max Martini. I missed it entirely. But I don't know that what Ben Affleck is doing is super duper difficult. And like a big envelope for us to be charmed by that character is created for him to play in. But he plays in it in a appealing way. Um, but I did. I did. I will say this in Ben Affleck's defense is that the thing about movie stars, right, is that movies have to be a certain size for them. Mm. And the best ones, if their movie stardom is not fully derived from their intense abilities as a thespian, like, say, Daniel Day-Lewis or Meryl Streep, yeah. the best ones have the sort of effortlessness that makes you just sit back and take in the movie. And I, I really think Mm. weirdly i love him in this movie but i think he's it's almost like it becomes like a crutch so like yes ben affleck is doing his job so well that everybody else is sort of like okay and i'm like no no you all need to work (laughs) (laughs) just just because he's just because he's effortless doesn't mean you don't need need to put in effort yeah um and I, i feel like that's the problem with a lot of like julia roberts lesser movies too it's just like Yes, you have like a megawatt star, but I mean, I'm taking us way back to the 90s now, <laughs> but you still have to build a movie around her. I find that, I mean, you can see that in old Hollywood all the time too, when you watch like some forgotten movie starring like a big star. Sure. You're like, oh, that's why this was forgotten. Because the only thing this movie had going for it is this like very pleasing personality that you just want to watch and everything. Yeah. And in this case, it felt like, there's just a lot about the film that felt like the areas where you have set yourself up to say something interesting, like the sort of weird social, I mean, it's not a weird social, but the, the social class dynamic between him and his girlfriend um, and what the household becomes like when he realizes he's not going to be here for very long. So just says what he wants to. And yet they can't seem to let each other go. Like we could delve into that, but the movie does not really seem all that capable of that. But it is really interested in his affection for his uncle Charlie, even though what we learned from that is like, I have affection for my uncle Charlie. Like the, like the proportions and like, well, you have feelings about other people in your family, but they're barely in the movie, you know? Um, or, yeah, you know, when we find out from the editor, like, you know, you've written all these fantastic stories. Uh, maybe at some point you should write about something that's not the bar in your neighborhood. I'm like, I've spent a lot of time in that bar and I can't, imagine what you would have written about it even <laughs> once like it seems like a haven for you with your favorite person but there are articles to be written about that i don't think so so like even though it doesn't have to matter that we never hear his prose you know whatever that happens in a lot of movies where like the artist or the writer or, like well show me the art show me the writing like you don't have to but i truly have no idea what he's doing and if you're gonna hang the end of your movie on like and i became a writer i'm like well you didn't show me anything about okay, that i, 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 I would yes. disagree with this because okay. I think it does show it and shows it very poorly because to me like when a, a movie about a writer is narrated by the writer yeah to me, that's their writing even if it's not meant to be to me that's their like bio, bio, there's their autobiography, right? I agree with you, but like, so you're, you're like, I like my Uncle Charlie. I was really glad that I thought my mom was going to die and she didn't. There's these two like, well, that's what I'm there's no art in the prose. Cause to me, yeah. the prose is the narration, even though I hate narration in general. Yeah. Um, 
and there was just nothing there even though like I think Ty Sheridan's like a good actor I like watching him yeah but there's just like nothing there's no meat to any of it but then does that add up to a movie that's saying like this guy became a writer but he's actually kind of like a bland one because I think the movie thinks it's a valentine to his having become a writer yes the movie and does maybe does that matter even if he's not a good writer or I don't know I don't know it I don't know how to square that though, sort of it should matter right because then that scene that scene where he doesn't get his dream job plays like oh they should have given him the job their loss and also or is it a chance to be like well what if you always thought you were a little better than you are or like I don't know what if this is like a Mike faced character <laughs> it's like why can't I get ahead why is it always about like I'm from the working class and like even when I get a big opportunity they take it back away from me like yeah. you could play some resentment here I don't know like um but it just does not feel like the movie wants to budge in relationship to its own yeah I sort of don't know what I now I'm talking myself out of liking it it was like so easy to watch which I attribute to Ben Affleck but um I find myself resenting it now for a sort of lack of commitment to any drama um and I just sort of don't understand what's going on with George Clooney as a filmmaker yeah his choices of what stories he wants to tell as a director just make no sense to me at all and I like you find a through line like I know this this made me happy. <laughs> I, this story about these football players that was so cute. Like, but also Edward R. Murrow. Like, I, yeah, I don't get it at all. But like, unlike the Aaron Sorkin, like, why are you still directing if you're not that inspired at it? It's like you wrote something that I can understand wanting to bring to the screen, and like, see, clearly lavished so much sensibility on it that I wish you'd make a different choice. But I can see why you feel like the protector of that ambitious script. Mm -hmm. With this, why are you? That's the other weird thing about going way back to like an hour ago or in part one of this podcast. <laughs> Three, yeah. <laughs> is that the thing I don't understand about Sorkin is like, what could he have resented about? And I feel the same way about Charlie Kaufman. Like, what could they have resented about the interpretation of their screenplays? Because those the movies that were made from their screenplays are such fantastic movies that were lauded for both their screenplays and direction of the screenplays so like what why do you feel like you, I could understand that if somebody had a bad experience like they wrote something they thought was great and the movie turned out shit I could understand them being like I have to direct this I have to protect it yeah in the movie everyone agrees that the movie's fabulous and then you still feel like no I'm the right choice and I'm like but everything that you've made from your own work is not as strong as what other people have made from your work right like I would maybe I'm deluding myself, but I, I feel like I would maybe take a step back and be like, you know what? I'm really good at this one thing. <laughs> right. Because but then I also wonder if there's like a, I, I already feel like I've learned what I'm going to learn from the being good at the thing I think I'm good at. And this is like, uh, this is a challenge. I'm trying yeah, to no, learn to be as good at this. And it's, it's just a I guess it's a different game with directors like there are plenty of actors that it took me 10 years to be like you keep trying with Penelope Cruz or Charlize Throne, and I'm not getting anything from this person and then like oh oh okay like now I get it or now they got it or or something happened you know but like how but it's a pretty different investment you know than spending years of your life on something that I it just and it changes it for me that Aaron Sorkin keeps saying like oh I don't I direct with my eyes closed. Like, I just want to listen to the rhythms of the dialogue. I, I let Feeden figure out the shots. I don't care about yeah, that. Like, why are you directing? 
what are you doing? You can stand next to the director with your eyes closed and listen to the rhythms of the dialogue. That would be fine. But like, don't give yourself the job that you're not even doing. And then you tell everybody about it, which I guess is better. Like you're not pretending, but anyway. Yeah, but, I mean, that sounds like my, like Woody Allen made a comedy about this section. there's a comedy where i never laughed once (laughs) yeah right um so yeah i mean it just seems like if you don't care about visuals you should not direct yeah it's a visual medium but at least i do understand what you do care about and with george clooney i'm like which sense was operating while you were doing it's not like a terrible film but like i don't think you were listening to the rhythms of the dialogue i don't think you care about the image i don't I guess it's cool to hang out with your friends and people who inspire you. Yeah. But I guess the, the reason it weirds me out with George Clooney is because it seemed like with his first few movies, he did seem like he cared. Or was As a director, his first few yeah. movies as a director? Like, seemed like he was, like, ambitious and was interested in visuals. and Even if I didn't always think they worked, like, I remember um, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Yeah. Like, I thought that was very messy in all ways as a movie including visually, but at least I could tell that he was trying things visually. Yeah, I, I, you're right. Even though I remember feeling like this is very much the, like I'm imitating what yeah. I think Spike Jones did. And, and Good Night and Good Luck always felt to me like this is getting credit because it's in black and white. There's nothing interesting about these shots. And so it did not last very long with me that I felt like he was really- Okay showing me that he organically had something he wanted to express through images. Um, hmm. On that downer note, we <laughs> two hours ago, we had mentioned Faye Dunaway and- Oh my God, up. yes, I forgot. It was my question. Follow up. Yeah. What did you want to say about them? You, you said we're going to use it as an icebreaker and we never really mentioned it. We never, yeah. I wonder if we- if we, <laughs> we could end with them. Did we never break the ice, Nathaniel? Have yeah. we been frosting with each other this whole time? Well, I so I'm teaching this class called Female Performance in Modern Hollywood, and every week is one or two people starting from the method to now. And that has just meant watching like 11 or 12 of each of these women's movies. And it's usually like half things that I've seen or we've all seen before. And then things that like, I've never watched that. I'd never even heard of that. And so it's making me just think about where all of our coordinates are for different people's careers. And so like with, with Dunaway, for example, um, like we talked a lot about how like, does anybody else have, certainly from that era, but even now, is there another actress with a Chinatown, a Bonnie and Clyde and a network much less within 10 years that are all canonical American classics that are going to stay that way. Um, and like, Probably not. Yeah. And like, I can see different reasons why at different times, even for me or for different people, you might fight about what's like the best of those movies. But as performances, Chinatown just seems like so obviously to me her peak as an actor. But I wondered what you think. Yeah. Because that, that's not the one I would list. So that's why I wanted to know. What would you like? Yeah, that would be my number three if I was ranking those three. Um, I To me, her peak is network. Okay. Like everything about that characterization to me is like, it's something that could, I mean, the, the screenplay is amazing on that movie, but it is still 
theoretically a role that could go very one note. Yep. The sort of angry woman. And she does play that note a lot, but like her screen magnetism is so powerful that it's like it it grants each note entire melodies to me. Mm -hmm. like, as a movie star, I, I there's very few people who are as mag magnetic as her in her prime. Yeah, absolutely. And so like to me, network is her peak because it's like the screenplay is is just as forceful as her screen presence. I see. And so it's like the perfect marriage, you know, of somebody at their peak with writing on their level. Because we often say about actors, they're like, they're acting circles around this movie they're in. Mm. Which we, there's an abundance of acting talent, but it seems less so on the sort of filmmaking side because a lot of movies don't, don't seem as good as the actors in acting them. I see. So I actually would say exactly that about Faye Dunaway and Network. Because I think that screenplay really lets itself down sort of massively, especially around her character. That, really? yeah, that, like it spends the whole second hour being giving, letting William Holden, who I, I think maybe shouldn't even be in the movie. I think that character's there so that there can be a Patty Chayefsky soapbox who can be like, I don't like how things are going and you're the problem. And it's <laughs> her and she's the problem. And he, he has like six scenes in the second half of Network to be like, you're cold, you only care about television, you only care about work. It's like, this bitch told us that about herself twice in the first 20 minutes that we knew. She knows all of this, but like, and has fully made her peace with it. And Faye Dunaway has problem solved it ingeniously to be like, yeah, I like myself. I have all kinds of problems. I am a mercenary. You shouldn't trust me. I'm going to get you in bed, but I'm going to drop you. I'm going to move on to something else. Yeah, I totally made sure that you got fired. Yeah, sorry. But like, <laughs> but plays it with like comic energy and like i actually believe that she really likes herself and i also believe that she's not just saying it she really knows what her limitations are and i love that she makes it feminine and doesn't play like some woman who became successful by impersonating what she thinks a man would do in the same situation right. and that's down to her hair and her clothes and everything but like by the second half it just feels like you can be as resourceful as you want but this character has been trapped and patty chayefsky is adam mckay and hates everybody except the person who's him hmm. and so i do I, see her acting circles around this kind of poison pill she's been given so what about china, what, why chinatown peak for you then because for me and i was surprised like i didn't think this was like my favorite of her performances until i went back but then it's like every single fucking scene that she's in she has to play i mean my pitch was that she and evelyn are both in similar situations of like, I have to play the scene that I'm in. I, Faye Dunaway has to also play the scene that only she knows that she's in because we haven't learned what we're going to learn yet. And has, and is not, Evelyn's not quite good enough to give a completely composed, convincing performance, except like the one time she comes to the office in her first scene mm -hmm. to be like, you should be scared of me. I will sue you. I'm rich and powerful. Yeah, but yeah. from most of the rest of the movie, it's Jack Nicholson showing up and catching her off guard. So like she's constantly having to improvise while also having to look like she's as cool and composed as you think she is while realizing that he's onto her lies. But then he'll be like, you're lying to me. I know it's this. And she's like, that's not true either. But let me go with that one and see if I can make that one work. So you won't figure out what's actually happening. And all of that has to look like like a water with no ripple. And I just think it's incredible. There's <laughs> just so many things happening and like she doesn't get one scene off to not have to be doing all of that yeah 
That that's a very convincing argument. Uh, have you seen her in *A Voyage of the Damned*? Yeah. <laughs> the only reason I bring that up is just like I love, I love just how like I'm just a movie star. I'm not in any way involved with the reality of <laughs> World War II or like the Holocaust or any of this. I'm a fucking movie star, and I'm gonna put this monocle on and <laughs> down. How I, I I feel like as a movie star, she owns her stardom in the same way that um, uh, the character's name in Network. Diana? The way the same, she owns her movie stardom the same way Diana owns her sort of predatory. Yeah. And I just really dig that, even though it's like, <laughs> I can't even remember what the character was about. I just, I... I think she's a really fun movie star in addition to being a great actor. Yep, I agree with both of those things. And I, I and I felt that I just watched Don Juan DeMarco for the first time uh-huh. with this. And like, I'd never seen that before. And to see that Faye Dunaway can also be completely relaxed on, like utterly uh-huh. relaxed. <laughs> and Arizona Dream, did you ever see that? I never did, no. Do you know about it? I, I I remember the name. It was I remember the name on VHX VHS boxes. I am old, but I I never saw it. So like she has to play a like recluse kind of. I don't remember now already if she's a widow or just a single woman, but who like wants to build her own aviation machines and fly over the Arizona desert. And Johnny Depp rolls up because he's in town for a funeral, and they start fucking, and she's so happy about that. But really, what she wants to do is like build like a Wright Brothers contraption <laughs> and it's like it's a comedy and it's also about how lusty she is for Johnny Depp but it's also about her like well whatever I can't get into it but like there are so many more colors to her work even like sort of post mommy dearest when we all decided that it was over but hmm. yeah and then the other one general um which I have confessed many times I'm just not I haven't seen a lot of her work yeah, and her her most canonical performance. I have avoided for personal reasons. I know I should watch it. I know I should watch it. It's always on my list. I just, for personal reasons, I'm scared of watching that. Okay, uh, a woman under the influence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I uh, my favorite of hers from what I've seen is opening night. Uh-huh. which chef's kiss that performance. Yeah, but what's your favorite of hers? I mean, it's definitely. A Woman Under the Influence. Yeah. Um, but from anybody else, opening night would be. But I also think she's incredible in um, Another Woman, the Woody Allen movie, and in, in part because it's the opposite of all of her other stuff. And she's just as good at, like, I'm not going to move. My features are not going to move. I'm not going to change my voice. This is how I move through my life. But you're going to be fascinated by it. Like, Bringing us full circle back to Martha Plimpton as well. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Well done. Another Woman is one of those Woody Allens. I, I know you're a, a big fan of that particular movie, but yeah. it, it came out sort of during the sort of, what, wait, what, what year was it again? It was 88. Okay. So it came out during the years where I was like falling in love with cinema. The late 80s were like the big time for me to like become like a cinephile. Um, mm. You know, that's when Michelle Pfeiffer happened, all that stuff, right? That made me who I am today. Um, and I, the very first Woody Allen movie I saw in theaters was Broadway Danny Rose, which I sort of went on a whim because like my family hated him because of 
Annie Hall beating Star Wars at the Oscars. <laughs> That's the only thing I had ever heard about him before Broadway Danny Rose. Yeah. And um and like I I went to it on a whim and just thought it was so funny. And um and so then uh, I saw Hannah and her sister. So after that I started going to every one of his movies. Um and I remember when another woman came out seeing it and just not I think maybe I was too young for it or something. Mm. Just sort of not because it, it was at the peak of when I'm like he's the greatest, or like yeah. the, the late '80s. Like I'd just seen Hannah and her sisters, and um, and I just remember not like I remember being way more obsessed with of all things September, which I'm sure is not that good of a movie. Uh-huh. Like, seems to care about it even. Um, but I I was really into September, so it's like I don't know why. Like another woman's like this weird blind spot in that oh. I've seen it. Uh huh. It's like the one that I've seen that I remember nothing about. Huh. That's interesting. I'm genuinely curious what you would make of it now, especially outside of all those contexts of just experiencing it as that movie with that cast. Cause I think everybody in it is also really good, including all these people like Betty Buckley and Sandy Dennis and John Houseman and um, who get like one scene or maybe two of like 90 seconds to have to sell you completely on a whole history of relationship they have with General Rowland's character, but also on what the rest of their lives have probably been like, even away from the General Rowland's character. And like, even by Woody Allen standard, that cast is so stacked. Everybody can do exactly what they're being asked. Um, but, but I remember that even at the time, people sort of ignored it across the board. Well, there was still this, like, he's good at comedies and bad at dramas, right? Like, I think that, that we just assumed that. And, like, September, like, he himself was such a, like, please don't see September, it's terrible. <laughs> I made it, and then I threw it in the trash, and I've made it a second time, and that's the one you're seeing, and I don't like that one either. Like, so he was not helping himself, but um, yeah. it, it, it didn't, it felt like it took crimes and misdemeanors to make anybody think he could not make a comedy. Um, okay but and this is so different from that and also it is so like yes I like Ingmar Bergman and I would like to be like him which is sort of embarrassing (laughs) there are things that he just steals um including the cinematographer but like if you just decide that like that means that this movie is a laughing stock I guess but I I think it's really good at being the thing I'm I'm curious to see it now and I know I should what else would you recommend for for those who are in the unfortunate position like me of needing more general ones in their life um, well, let me just say another woman is 82 minutes also. So that's for you. Okay. Um, the other one that I really was taken with that I'd never seen, and I'm, I'm betting maybe you have, is An Early Frost, the TV movie. Oh, I have seen that, yeah. Yeah. And so um, I was embarrassed I'd never watched the first TV movie about AIDS. Yeah. But yeah. also just now that I understand who she is and know her career so much better, um, of all fucking people to play the every woman to America and <laughs> be the messenger of that. Like you hire the woman under the influence, <laughs> but she's, yeah, yeah. she's um, it just kind of struck out to me in a different way that like, it's true that people were like the, what she does with Cassavetes is so its own thing that it does seem like people had a hard time imagining other things she could do. Um, and TV was the place where she kind of could do other things. And that performance is a really smart and really interesting performance of somebody who's not demonstrative or all that. And sometimes does just have to be like, these are facts you should know about HIV. Mm-hmm. But I think she's really warm and really good in that. I watched Tempest, which is such a weird movie and she's not like the center of it, but if people have never seen that sort of remake the of the Molly Ringwald one. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's basically kind of the Tempest remade for a contemporary island. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I would say that's an so, amazing performance, but. So in this uh, series that you're doing in this class, um, yeah. how many sections of the of your syllabus, how many actresses are you doing? It's one or two a week. And it's like, it's a, it's a class for alumni. So it's 300 people and oh, wow. they watch two movies um, every week. Um, so for this one, they watched A Woman of the Influence and Another Woman just to see the diametric opposites. And for Cicely Tyson this week, um, everybody hopefully watches Sounder and Jane Pittman. Okay. Um, but then there are weeks coming later where like there's a Kate Blanchett, Nicole Kidman week about sort of how Australian actors are not American or British and the way they do things and the kind of extremities of like super external and super interior performances. So we're going to do Blue Jasmine in birth, but oh, that's yeah. also Blue Jasmine. So we can think about it as a Jenna Rollins performance. Um, so most of the people in the second half, I'm sort of suggesting a lineage with things that were pioneered by people in the first half. Um, so yeah. So who are you ending with? Or are we spoiling everything? Or is your syllabus? The last week is um, Viola Davis and Frances McDormand, um, both as kind of like sort of egotty state-of-the-art actors right now. And yet, like, I think I read something, it was in Michael Koreski's book where he talks about how what we never get anymore, and he was talking about Jessica Lange at the moment, but was actors who seem like they're from a particular place. Um, and that everybody now kind of seems like they're from California or they're just from Hollywood or whatever. Right, right. Um, and so I'm really interested in the ways in which Viola Davis and Frances McDormand, and we're going to watch Ma Rainey and Nomadland, which is a, um, which are kind of out of character roles for both of those women. Um, and that's part of why we're watching them, but also that they've always managed to make their own particularity and eccentricity visible within the work that they do. And um, who are you comparing them to from the, the lineage? So for Frances McDormand, I was interested in um, Kim Stanley of just okay. somebody who um, unlikely stardom and grappling with her own eccentricity probably at all times. And Viola Davis with um, Cicely Tyson, um, since she talks about her so often as her North Star, but also Cicely Tyson kind of having to have her career on TV because nobody was offering her one in movies and, yeah. and now watching Viola Davis including with Cicely's her mom move wherever she wants. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, I wish I could, I always wish I could take your classes. This one is like, I showed Derek the syllabus and he was like, how have you never taught this before? This is the most you class in the history of you and in the history of classes. Like you go teach this every year from now on. But yeah, yeah. Um, I wish I were in the room with my students. It would be fun to know, especially because they're alumni. So like they all saw these movies when they were new. And I wish we could have more conversation. Oh, very exciting. One day. Thank you for joining us for this epic <laughs> two-part podcast. We hope everyone... trilogy we made. Thanks for listening to both parts one and part two and for getting all of our disparate takes on lots of different movies that we're cramming into the end of the year. Yay! Yeah.